0: Uh, Let me pray before we do have a look at this passage from Micah together. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us in the prophet Micah. Uh, Thank you that it speaks to us even today with your word to grow us to be more and more your children and in the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now there is uh, an outline in your bulletin there if you'd like to follow along or uh, write anything down. Later on, there's even a couple of spaces where you can fill in the blanks if that's something uh, that would interest you as well. Now, as summer has heated up uh, at our house, and I'm assuming many of your houses as well, the grass has not stopped growing. Uh, In fact, I mow it, and then the very next day, sometimes even later that day, I wonder, was it really worth it? Maybe I should just leave it a few weeks, even a month or more, and then mow it, because then I would really appreciate the contrast, wouldn't I? I wouldn't have to mow it as often. And then I'd be able to see just how far it has come, how terrible it would have been before, just a foot high or something like that, and then looking a bit nicer afterwards. Now I know that that's not what you're meant to do with a lawn, but it is tempting. There are other areas in life where acting in that way is tempting as well. Uh, maybe people do it at Christmas time, before Christmas with what they eat, and then in the new year with setting resolutions or exercise or something like that. It can happen with cleaning a kitchen. There's something satisfying about having one that's completely a disaster and then seeing it nice again afterwards. Having a contrast, well, it can encourage us. We see how good it is, but we see where it has come from as well. Now, there are certain areas in life where you really shouldn't do this, should you? Let alone uh, something like having a shower, brushing your teeth. No matter how much contrast there is there, that's something we should do every day. But it is tempting sometimes. Here in this passage today, we have God's people being shown how far they have come. We see that they are being shown that they have something good to appreciate. And they can see even more how good it is because they are being told by God where they have come from before. God shows them how far he has brought them as his people. He also shows them where they are going as well. And so it's encouraging for us to see that contrast. Now, of course, that contrast is between their previous sinful life And then the promises that God will uphold in Christ. That doesn't mean that their sinful life was in any way good, but God can use even the sin in our lives to show us how much better it is to live with Christ. And so, previously in the book of Micah, in the first couple of chapters, we've seen that the Lord is coming, He'll return in judgment. So be ready, don't listen to the false prophets even if they do tell you exactly what you want to hear. Then we saw the ideal Jerusalem that was destined to be achieved despite the problems that were besetting God's people. But yes, there would be suffering, but at the end, there would be glory. And now, in today, we have this image of the Messiah being introduced, that the Messiah would come From the small, insignificant town of Bethlehem. How appropriate it is to be looking at this just a week before Christmas to remind us how glorious it is that God entered into his own creation through his Son Jesus Christ. And our first point here today is that God's promised Messiah, he will come. Israel, though, are not in a good situation. Calamity is overtaking their capital city, Jerusalem, and their kings. That's why at the beginning of chapter 5, they're being told to marshal their troops. A siege is being laid against them. Now this siege is referring to Sennacherib, who was the leader of Assyria at the time. And there is evidence that he sieged Jerusalem in 701 BC. Of course, the Assyrians, they took all the northern part of Israel, the northern kingdom, into captivity never really to return. But here they are threatening, even Jerusalem. There was a time when Israel was secure, when they remembered God, but that was a long time ago. There was a time when they had a better king, one again who came from the small insignificant town of Bethlehem, one who would be a shepherd, That, of course, was King David. But here again, we have a better King David being promised. In verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, one whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. This is one of the passages that encouraged the Jews to look to a messiah to hope that a Messiah would come. Just like in our New Testament reading, when John's disciples came to Jesus and asked him, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? They could hardly believe that Jesus was the one who was promised, but he shows them through what he has done and what he has said that yes, he is this promised Messiah, this king, this shepherd. And this Messiah won't just come, but our second point there, this Messiah will rule, not as a tyrant, but as a shepherd, as a servant leader. Verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty and the name of the Lord his God. Now, of course, David, he literally was a shepherd before he became the king pointing forward to the fact that Jesus would rule as king, as a shepherd. Not one standing back and sending out his troops, sending out his people, but one leading them. Leading them not into war, but leading them into safety. Leading them somewhere good. Caring for their every need. And that's why in verse 5 it says, He will be our peace. The Messiah that is promised there in Micah, picked up by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, when Paul, talking of Jesus, says, He Himself is our peace. Someone who does away with conflict. As was promised previously in Micah, someone who would enable people to turn swords into plowshares, who would do away with the need for defensive or offensive action, God's promised Messiah would come and would rule, even though, here in point three, even though Israel was scattered and far from him. Israel was a shadow of what it was before. They had turned to seemingly every other God or every other place for comfort that they could. And so, because of this, God would purge them, not as punishment, but as the way to be able to bring them back to him. Imagine someone leaving, probably a child, imagine a child leaving their bedroom so messy that it's beyond help, that there's no way of tidying it up again, that you can't even get inside. What do you do at that point? You can't just put things back the way they were. It needs purging. God's already done this through the Bible. He's purged people. That's what the flood of Noah was. But he promised never to do that again. So he would do it in a different way. Not physically purging the world with water, but our own hearts with his Holy Spirit. But here in Micah, though, the people, they're running after false military power, false hope in magic false religion, but God would purge them of all those things. Yes, his judgment is destructive, but it purifies. And really, it depends on how we respond to him as to what the outcome is. It's never, it's never uh, comfortable to feel like God is purifying your heart. It's often painful. But it leads to a better place when we trust in him and know that he is forming us more and more into the image of his son. But at this point, the Israelites themselves, the people of Judah, they would be asking, why? Why do all this to us? Really, what have we done? As if they can't remember. Well, our fourth point there is that God has a case against his people Israel. As he says there in verse 2, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. He has redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He's sent people to lead them. He's kept them from people who would hurt them. I can't remember the number of times that he has to repeat throughout the Old Testament that he saved them from Egypt. But he would only need to do this if they keep on forgetting if they keep on ignoring what he has done, the contrast between where they have come from and where he has promised that he would lead them. They need to remember what he has done for them and act accordingly. So how do they do that? How can they come before God? Well, our point five there is addressing that very question. In verse 6 of Micah, chapter 5, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before God? Sorry, Micah chapter 6. Does he just want more offerings? Burnt offerings, not just regular ones, but where the whole animal is given over to God and none of it is eaten? Would he like a thousand of them? Would he like 10,000 rivers of olive oil? An impossible amount. Would he even like someone to sacrifice their firstborn son, as it goes on to describe there in chapter 6. The people are crying out, just tell us what to do, what more could they do? But they're focusing on excessive giving, as if God is interested in the size of the gifts that they give him. At Christmas time, there's always one present under the tree that seems to be bigger than the others. And everyone's always very interested to see what's inside that big present. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's something better than in the other presents. It doesn't even mean that it's something more expensive than the other presents. But God is not interested in the size of our gifts. What purpose did animal sacrifices have in restoring a person's relationship with God? Were they just a means of bribing God? by giving him an enormous quantity of gifts to placate him and keep him happy? No, of course not. They were so much more important. They were an outward sign of an inner attitude that people had, a broken and contrite heart before God, a repentant heart. And so instead, this wonderful verse, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it tells us what God wants. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. They were offering everything except what he actually had asked for their hearts, their love, their obedience. And it's not as though the God of the Old Testament was all about sacrifice and judgment and the New Testament about about love. This is here from the Old Testament and it's one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible about God's love, his love of mercy and justice and humility. He wants them to act justly because he is a just God. But this isn't some kind of impersonal justice. It's not a judge there in a courtroom. It's someone who loves what is right, what is good. Because if it was impersonal, then it would make no sense for him to say afterwards to love mercy. This word mercy, though, it hardly encapsulates all that is being conveyed. Because this is one of those words in the Old Testament that can actually have many meanings all at the same time. It's one of those words that's hard to define with just one word. But here's my favourite definition. And it actually comes from one of my favourite Bibles as well, the Jesus Storybook Bible. As you might guess, this is actually a children's Bible. But if you ever do get a chance to read it, it has wonderful pictures and though being a children's Bible, perhaps because it's a children's Bible, it has a wonderful way of describing the love of God. And when it's talking about God's mercy here, when we have love mercy, it describes it as a never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. It's a bit of a mouthful, but what a description of God's mercy. A never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. This is how God wants us to act towards each other. And we do that so much better if we don't just do the horizontal action of loving each other, but also the vertical one of loving God. And that's the third part of that verse. Walk humbly with your Lord. If you walk humbly with God, well, then, of course, you will act justly. Of course, you will love mercy as God has defined it. This is what God wants us to do not offering more sacrifices because he himself has fulfilled the need for sacrifices. All sacrifices were pointing forward to Jesus and Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. And so how much more are we able to pay attention to this verse knowing what God has done for us, knowing the contrast of where God's people were and where we are now, having Jesus and having God's spirit in us to help us to walk humbly. And so let's remember to appreciate where we have come from as God's people throughout history. And maybe you can appreciate where you have come from personally in your life as well. Without knowing Jesus, to having him as Lord and Savior with whom you can walk humbly. Now, of course, this doesn't in any way encourage us To do what is wrong so that it may increase the contrast, like I was saying with not mowing my lawn. In fact, Paul addresses this very question in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. He says, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. Of course not. That would be absurd. But in God's sovereign love, he can take even the most evil actions and bring about good. Including the good of showing someone how far they have come, how much they truly need Christ, and where they would be if they did not have him. Throughout the story of the Bible, God has shown us how far he has brought his people, where they are going, and how that is fulfilled in Christ. And it's the same just as much today as it was for God's people there in Micah. A wonderful reminder a week out from Christmas for us as well. So let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us here in Micah. Thank you that it promises the Messiah and that we know that that is your Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so in light of knowing him, knowing where your people have come from, knowing what you went through, to fix our relationship with you through Christ. Help us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.